I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. The issue of slavery and the Civil War itself were baked into the Constitution the very day it was signed and ratified. When the framers and founding fathers decided to kick the can down the road and not deal with slavery from the start, the split was only a matter of time. The southern states could not have cut the cancer of chattel slavery out of their society if they had wanted to. It was far too deeply embedded. And in this case... For the most part, they did not want to. As the young United States grew and expanded, so too did the South. Instead of shedding the horror of slavery, they wished to extend the national sin to fresh territories. Appalled but afraid to act too assertively, the northern states rallied and tried, like little Hans Brinker, to put their proverbial finger in the dam. Compromises, deals, and acts were created, and both sides tried their hardest to make nice, but there could never have been any other outcome. As the saying goes, a house divided against itself cannot stand. The man that succinctly described the country's festering, maybe mortal wound, and predicted the truth to come, that it would not stay divided long, it would become whole one way or whole the other way, was Abraham Lincoln. His election to the presidency made it clear to the leading men in the South that appeasement, concessions, and land haggling was no longer on the table. Believing in their cause and with a certain kind of courage and bravery, the southern states began to secede from the still-infant Union. The men from Montgomery and Memphis and Mobile and Mount Pleasant believed in the sovereignty of their individual states. They also thought that it was their right, their God-given and founding father-approved right, to secede whenever they damn well wanted. The country they all loved had begun as a gang of desperate colonies rebelling against an oppressive government far away. What difference was it then for states to peacefully withdraw from a government they deemed was not looking out for their best interest, that seemingly wanted to harm them? And isn't it just? Wouldn't Jefferson, Adams, and Washington approve that when pushed, these seceding states picked up arms and forced a separation, forced their independence? The Civil War's causes, of course, varied. Territorial concerns, states' rights, sectionalism, protectionism, honor, pride, hate, fear. But it always comes back to two things, slavery and the election of Lincoln. After the newly minted president was inaugurated into office, things got hot quickly. States seceded one after the other, South Carolina, Mississippi, Georgia, Texas, and soon others followed. A provisional government 
A provisional government was set up, complete with a president, a congress, and its own currency. It was hoped the war would be avoided, but preparations for the inevitable went ahead on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. In the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina, a poorly provisioned federal garrison was in the crosshairs of Confederate cannon, and the eyes of the nation and the world looked on. April 12th and 13th, 1861, started one of the worst kinds of wars. That is, of course, if there can be a worse or better kind of war. A civil war cracked off in the New World that would last four years and rip the Republic asunder. For more than 1,400 days, brother fought brother, father killed son, friend cut down friend. Not for a minute did the suffering stop, whether for the soldiers or the non-combatants. Disease, privation, hunger, petty violence, rape and pillage roamed the land from the swamps of South Carolina to the Pennsylvania forests. From the Mississippi to the mountains of Appalachia, 10,000 and more battles were fought of every size, from glorified bar brawls to clashes of cataclysmic scale. By its end, over a million lives had been snuffed out and millions more ruined. The butcher's bill on both sides included lowly privates and brilliant generals, statesmen and lawmakers, farmers, women, shopkeepers, teachers, children, slaves, a president, and everyone in between. In the beginning, though, none of that was known. The scale and toll of the national troubles had yet to be calculated. The whole country, both federal and confederate, walked into the thick, disorienting fog of war, not knowing what the incredible cost would be. Early on in the war, the South was confident. Its skilled hunters, frontiersmen, and hardy farmers seemed more than capable of handling the soft city dwellers of the North. If the South could string together some early successes, they might force negotiations. If they were to avoid the eventual crushing weight of the North's superior numbers, technology, and economy, the South had to win quick. First Manassas was a union whipping at Washington, D.C.'s doorstep. Lincoln, facing the greatest crisis the country had ever and has ever known, could not find a man that would fight, or more importantly, fight well. He needed the greatest military man of that generation, and it seemed he had nothing but hacks and has-beens at hand. That would change, not in the East, where it was assumed the war would be fought and won, but in the West, a few hundred miles distant, but a world away. In every battle, there comes a time when both sides consider themselves beaten. Then he who continues the attack wins. End quote. Grant's statement here is not just a bit of battlefield wisdom. He could just as readily have been describing North and South in the lead-up to the American Civil War, or throughout the war itself, or any of the thousands of battles that took place during it. Lincoln, self-admittedly no military man, understood the dogged nature needed to win the drag-em-out, drop-em-down type contest that this war was going to become. Quote, Our success or failure at Donelson is vastly important, and I beg you to put your soul in the effort. Finding the type of man that would attack even after he thought he'd already lost 
proved difficult, but not impossible. It was on the rivers of the Western theater that the war would shift for good, where the man and the mind, Lincoln and the Union most needed, would mature into a singular force. Let's go back to February 1862, to the winding calm of the Cumberland River, New, bizarrely, beetle-like, and inky black, but deadly, ironclad beasts are chugging upstream to pound two forts into submission. One fort will fall quickly and with little fight. The other will take days and see savage combat. Let's go back to a time where a determined brigadier general is preparing to show his family, his country, and himself that he's no failure. He can, in fact, succeed, maybe even excel. Let's go back to where a group of cold but confident Confederate soldiers are readying to defend their new country, no matter the cost. Let's go back to the Battle of Fort Donelson. Early on in the war, the grizzled old soldier Winfield Scott devised a stratagem that would be known to history as the Anaconda Plan. It called for a blockade of the Confederate coast and the conquering of the Mississippi. Hemmed in on all fronts and without the lifeline of trade to prop up its economy, the fledgling new state would fail. The topography of the South made invasion difficult from the North, but less so from the West. With rivers like the Tennessee, Ohio, and Cumberland, the Union Army might be able to drive south and east into the very heart of the Confederacy. And they had to use the rivers because the south had three times less mileage in railroads than the north. If the Union wanted to campaign in the south, it would need to come from the west. To do that, it needed to capture the rivers that poured into, and then eventually, the mighty Mississippi herself. The commander of the Western Theater, General Halleck, decided to target the feeder rivers first. The Cumberland was virtually a highway for trade and movement to and from the city of Nashville. And Nashville was one of the rare rail and manufacturing hubs of the South. To take the city, they would need to secure the river. Fort Henry on the nearby and connected Tennessee River was never going to hold out for very long. With only 3,000 to 4,000 men facing the 15,000-strong Union men of the soon-to-be-called Army of the Tennessee, the Confederates were vastly outgunned. Added to that, the advancing army was bringing some fancy new toys to the fight. Chugging their way up the Tennessee River was the Western Flotilla, commanded by the reliable flag officer Andrew Foote. Of his seven ships, four were the newly built city-class ironclads. Using the latest in steam power, metallurgy, and ship design, these oddly shaped and ungainly-looking vessels could take and deliver a beating. With iron or steel covering almost every inch of the ship's surface, only direct fire from heavy guns could harm them. With a full complement of their own giant cannon, seemingly added everywhere with a very liberal hand, they could rain down hell on any enemy. 
The ironclads instantly made wooden ships obsolete, and they gave a general that could see how to use them an immediate force multiplier. Brigadier General U.S. Grant was just such a man. Grant was a veteran of the Mexican War and had served well. Mishaps had led him to getting cashiered, and he found civilian life less than straightforward. A failure at farming, tanning, shopkeeping, and almost everything he did, Grant was, if not happy about the war, at least grateful to get back to doing something he knew he could succeed at. The taking of Fort Henry was his first real solo command, and he wanted things to go well. His plan was simple but solid. He would take his much larger army over land and storm the fort while his little fleet blasted away at the fort's gun batteries. He believed it would be a quick and easy fight. He was more right than he could have possibly known. The Confederate commander Tillman was in a hell of a position. Fort Henry was poorly placed, too low on the riverbank, and most of its 17 gun emplacements were flooded by the time of the battle. Recognizing a losing hand when he had one, Tillman sent the majority of his army to nearby Fort Donelson. He kept just enough gunners to man the artillery and buy time. When the Western flotilla arrived at midday on February 6th, the duel began. Tillman bravely ordered even more men to evacuate while he held on to give them time to escape. After an hour of withering fire, and with the ironclads closing in for the kill, the white flag went up from Fort Henry. Tillman and less than a hundred men were taken captive by Foote's fleet. General Grant and his army showed up later in the day to a fait accompli. The poor location of the fort and the rising river had won the day more than anything else. But for a country starved for good news, the fall of Fort Henry was sustenance. The Chicago Tribune claimed the lopsided battle to be one of the, quote, most complete in the annals of the world's warfare, end quote. Halleck, on hearing the news, sent a uh, dispatch to Washington that made it sound like the war was over, saying, quote, Fort Henry is ours, the flag is reestablished on the soil of Tennessee, and it will never be removed, end quote. With the fall of Fort Henry, the Confederate plan to hold Tennessee in the West suffered a considerable blow. The two main Southern armies in the theater, 12,000 men in Columbus, Kentucky, and 22,000 men in Bowling Green, Kentucky, were now divided, and the Tennessee River had been taken. The overall Confederate commander and the widely considered best soldier in the South, Albert Sidney Johnston, decided to bolster Fort Donelson in the hopes that it would protect Nashville. This move added 12,000 men to a garrison of 5,000. So with 17,000 men and a well-provisioned fort, the Confederate leadership hoped to at least stall the Union advance, if not outright stop it. Unlike Fort Henry, Fort Donelson was designed to do just that. With a veritable rabbit's warren of trenches and dugouts that amounted to miles of protected firing positions, just reaching Donelson was going to be hard. Earthworks, palisades, and stockades created superb killing zones and fields of fire. 
With crisscrossing streams, gullies, and ravines, the man-made and nature-made combined to make a deadly dynamic duo. And that was just the landward side. On the river, defenses were even stronger. Unlike Fort Henry, Donelson was a fort well-positioned to control the river. The bluffs reached a hundred feet above the waterline and commanded the river for miles in both directions. Unobstructed fields of vision meant the guns of the fort could pepper any oncoming flotilla through its entire approach. And the gun batteries were themselves protected by being positioned in dugouts in the rock face of the bluffs. They were also staggered in a way that meant any ships down below would be taking fire from almost directly above. Donaldson was ready for whatever the Union sent its way, by land or river. Again, Grant's plan was simple, but maybe this time it was too simple. He planned to repeat the Henry action almost to the letter. He sent Foote and the flotilla upriver ahead of his army. When they got into position, the army would attack while the ships bombarded the fort. Because the river route was 150 miles of winding water and the land route only 12 miles across, Grant sent the ships first, planning to rest and ready the army. On the 7th, he rode out to reconnoiter the land around the fort himself. While within a mile of Donaldson itself, he found a couple of roads large enough to accommodate his army. Grant loved to see things for himself. He had an innate eye for terrain, and collecting maps and guidebooks was a passion of his. Any chance he had to see the enemy position firsthand, he took. On the 11th, Foote sent word that his ships would take up their pre-battle positions on the evening of the 12th. Grant ordered his men to move out the same day, expecting to make the march in short order. The weather was working with the Union Army, and it was actually so nice and warm that one Union officer said that, quote, the river, land, and sky shimmered with warmth, end quote. With the high spirits of a conquering army, Union soldiers broke into song and thoroughly enjoyed the march. So nice was the weather that men became overheated and decided to toss their overcoats and blankets to the side of the road. The naivete of the Green Union soldiers is almost shocking and really shows how hopeful these men were for a quick, easy war. The army arrived outside Fort Donelson on the 12th, and while he waited for the gunships, Grant went about the business of settling in. Some light skirmishing occurred, and already the fight for Donelson was more deadly and challenging than at Fort Henry. On the 13th, there were a few small engagements but nothing major. Grant specifically ordered his commanders to keep things quiet. He didn't want to battle until his ships were in place. The night of the 13th, the weather changed, and winter came charging back with a vengeance. Temps dropped to 12 degrees Fahrenheit, and the rain that had been falling turned to sleet and then snow. Having tossed aside blankets and coats, many Union soldiers were caught in the open. It got so cold that wagon wheels and gun casements froze to the ground. Because of the active snipers from the fort, Grant forbade building fires for fear of bringing enemy attention. The men of the 12th Iowa ended up running in circles all night just to stay warm and not get frostbite. By morning, there were three inches of snow covering everything, including any men that had been sleeping on the ground.
On the 14th, the two sides were in their battle positions. The Confederates were under the overall command of Brigadier General John Floyd. The Confederate defenses looped out in a crescent moon formation, with each tip anchored by water. On the Confederate far left tip was Floyd himself. In the center, bulging out towards the Union, was his second-in-command, Brigadier General Gideon Pillow. Then, on the far right tip, was the best of the three, but third-in-command, Brigadier General Simon Bolivar Buckner. The cavalry was in the hands of the most gifted, maybe of the whole war, Confederate commander, Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Bedford Forrest. Mirroring the defense, Grant had his old West Point instructor, Brigadier General C.F. Smith, on his left. Brigadier General Lew Wallace held the center of the line, and on the far right tip was Brigadier General John McClernand. The Union plan was to squeeze the defenders while the flotilla fired away from the fort's rear. In the late afternoon, Foote and his ship steamed upriver. His four black ironclads were trailed by two timberclads, which were ships with the cannons and steam power of ironclads, but without the armor. The men in Fort Donelson had heard about the pummeling of Fort Henry, and fear rippled through the defenders. The unknown and the imagination teamed up to play havoc on morale. Lieutenant Colonel Forrest, according to Ron Chernow's book, said, quote, Parson, for God's sake, pray! Nothing but God Almighty can save that fort, end quote. But outside of prayer, there was little to be done. All they could do now was wait for the coming onslaught and fire the guns when the alien-looking ships came into range. The Confederate prayers were answered. Because of the height of Donaldson's guns, the shots angled downwards, hitting the ships in their weakest spot. Instead of glancing blows to the thick side armor, the ironclads were taking shots from straight above like lance thrusts. They also had to run the gauntlet as the fort's artillery could fire as they approached. Then Foote compounded the issue by bringing his fleet in close to the bluff, giving the guns above even better shots. Each round crashed into the ships. Direct hits split through the armor, making hideous, screeching, metallic noises, according to one captain, quote, as lightning tears the bark from a tree, end quote. It was a deafening, mind-numbing cacophony inside the supposedly impervious ships. And the poor Union vessels couldn't strike back at their tormentors above because the ship's guns weren't able to elevate enough to get off accurate or effective fire. Like turtles on their backs, the Western flotilla was almost helpless. Eventually, some Confederate shots began to really count. The flagship St. Louis took a shot in its pilot house that ricocheted around, wounding several, including flag officer Foote himself. In the chaos, the St. Louis lost steering and propulsion, rendering the, the ship almost entirely limp. Around the same time, the other ironclads were also hit and damaged. The ships that lost movement and steering began to flow with the current back downriver to where they started. Each ironclad had taken 40 or more direct hits. It was a wonder and a testament to the design of these new ships that they were still afloat at all. In just around 90 minutes, 54 Union sailors were killed 
and the entire flotilla had moved back to where it had begun so that they could evacuate the dead or wounded and make emergency repairs where possible. The outcome of the duel on the river was a shock to both sides. The Confederate soldiers basked in their momentary glory. The excitement level was so high, they even sent a joyful telegram to Richmond detailing the day's success. The victory was sweet, but a glance around reminded the Confederate commanders that they were far from victorious. Grant, for his part, was disappointed but not deflated. He was a man of momentum, never one to stay in the same place long. Grant hated retracing his steps, and when he set out to take Fort Donelson, there was no second option, no backup plan. Because of that, Grant had to do something he rarely ever did. He had his men begin to dig in for the long haul. Figuring a siege of some time was in the offing, Grant wanted to be ready. Digging in drained men of offensive energy. Why expose yourself to death when you can stay in a safe little hole? It also, on a more psychological level, gave the wrong impression to the men. He wanted them to believe they were an irresistible wave of moral right and martial strength. Stagnation felt more like a dissipation of energy to Grant, even when it made strategic or tactical sense. Again, on the night of the 14th, the weather was hard. Snow and freezing temps made life miserable for both sides. But of the two, the Confederates fared worse. As the 14th went on, the Union forces saw their numbers grow, even with the defeat on the river. Time was the ally of the North, much like winter was the ally of Russia. Given time, the multitudes from New York, Boston, Chicago, and elsewhere would swarm south and suffocate the Confederacy. Oddly enough, the longer Fort Donelson held out, the less likely the Confederates would win. Around them was a steadily tightening vice that was just going to gain weight and power. The tight situation made the men jumpy and agitated and scared the hell out of the officers. With no rescue in sight, they knew how this ended. Starvation and submission or death in the final assault. Generals Floyd and Pillow chose option three. Breakout. Around two in the morning of the 15th, Flag Officer Foote, too injured to go to Grant himself, summoned the general to his flagship. At dawn, Grant rode out to meet with his flotilla commander. He ordered his generals to stay put and not to engage the enemy while he was gone. Foote explained to Grant that he wanted to take his ships back to Cairo for a full refit. Now, I know it's spelt Cairo, but I was recently informed that it is pronounced Cairo. So Grant, seeing that it was needed uh, for these ships to get refitted and fixed, but not wanting to lose the firepower, convinced Foote to choose only the most heavily damaged to take back. The rest would stay put for the final attack. Having settled the matter, Grant started to head back to the line around noon. As he was leaving, a pale-faced and frightened aide met Grant with shocking news. The Confederate army had attacked in the morning and was ripping the right wing of Grant's army to shreds. 
McLaren was in full retreat, and it looked like the army might be dislodged, maybe even destroyed. Grant was a superb horseman, and at this moment, it counted. He rode back the seven miles to camp at a gallop. At any moment, rider and horse could have slipped on snow or ice, taken a tumble, and both been killed. Instead, fate, or his ability, saw him through, and Grant was soon reunited with his lieutenants. On his arrival, McLaren said, quote, This army wants a head, end quote. A not-so-subtle rebuke of Grant for being away during the attack. In response, Grant calmly stated, quote, It seems so. Gentlemen, the position on the right must be retaken, end quote. In two sentences, Grant had chastised his general for the lip and clearly stated his aim. It was a brilliant bit of management. He knew McLaren had actually done well in the morning's fight. His men had fought hard until their ammo ran out. Because of a lack of leadership, though, the right wing melted once it became clear that the enemy was out in force. McLaren had botched the follow-through, and Grant was reminding him who was in charge without saying those exact words. The second sentence about retaking the position is even more insightful. Chernow states that Grant came up with plans of, quote, immaculate simplicity. And this is the proof. No micromanagement here. No confused, complicated maneuvers. Just a simple goal and the freedom to go about achieving it. He could be wildly audacious at times, and he always played for the very highest of stakes, but he was at his best when being most blunt. James McPherson said of him, quote, Grant's determination sometimes led him to see only that which was in his own mind, not what the enemy might be intending, with unfortunate results. Still, boldness never brought Grant to disaster, end quote. This encapsulates Fort Donelson. His absence from the field never crossed his mind as being dangerous. And when things had turned, his ability to boil the issue down to its core and then boldly plot a new course of action was impressive to say the least. Controlling the madness swirling around him, Grant went around to the milling, rudderless men giving calm, almost conversational orders. Slowly, the panic seeped out of the Union soldiers, and they started acting the part again. It might be that Grant's calm came from a life full of failure. For a man that had hit rock bottom many a time, things were never that bad. Aside from a calm demeanor, Grant had a highly inquisitive mind and wanted to gather as much information on the enemy as possible. Time and again, his knowledge of the land or of an opposing general led to just the right move to lead his army to victory. One thing that puzzled Grant on the 15th was, why were the Confederates attacking at all? Why not stay in the fort? What was the objective? To that end, he inspected a captured rebel kit. Inside, there were days' worth of cooked food which to some of the generals was proof that the enemy intended to stand and fight, taking their food because they planned on staying put. Grant thought otherwise. He rightly surmised that the cooked food was actually meant to sustain men on the run. The whole thing was a breakout attempt, a Confederate mad dash hope to slice its way free of the vice and run for Nashville. The enemy plan had almost worked, too. 
At first, the Confederates had overpowered the Union positions, and then they had turned McClernand's flank. Applying enormous pressure, General Pillow rolled up the Union right all the way to Lew Wallace's position in the center of the line. But it was here that instead of redoubling the effort, Pillow froze. He halted, unsure of what to do with his own success. In the pause, Grant acted, quote, Some of our men are pretty badly demoralized, but the enemy must be more so, for he has attempted to force his way out, but has fallen back. The one who attacks first now will be victorious, and the enemy will have to be in a hurry if he gets ahead of me, end quote. Grant was always better at sensing weakness in the enemy than strength, and like a hound with a scent, he was on it. Like the quote we talked about in the beginning of this episode, this is the moment when both sides believe that they've lost the battle, but the side that continues to attack wins the day. Quote, fill your cartridge boxes, boys, quick and get into line. The enemy is trying to escape, and he must not be permitted to do so. End quote. Grant said this according to Ron Chernow's amazing biography, and in these moments, he's formulating the winning plan and building up his men's morale. Grant had his gunships even firing into the fort, not so much to do anything uh, to, to defeat the Confederates, but it was more so just to further hype up his own army's spirit and, and demoralize the Confederates at the same time. And it worked. Pillow was staggered by the casualties that he had suffered already, and he was confused by the bombardment and sudden Union resistance, and he was afraid that to push on would cost too much. Buckner, who saw how close victory was and that the ultimate danger of falling back was defeat, he protested wildly, but Pillow overruled him. The Confederate forces began a slow retreat to the river and the safety of the fort. Again, sensing weakness, Grant ordered General Smith on his left to attack the Confederate right wing. Smith's men fought brilliantly, and by the end of the day, both sides were exhausted and battered, but somehow the Union was in an even better position than it had started the day with. The Confederate army, on the other hand, was drained, demoralized, more outnumbered than before, and its commanders were about to bail. The night of the 15th was a cold one for the Confederate generals. General Floyd, in overall command, was terrified of what might come next. You see, he had been the Secretary of War under President Buchanan before the war. In the chaos before Fort Sumter, Floyd had used his position to move arms and ammunition from northern arsenals to southern ones. This apparent act of treason made him a marked man, and he knew it. If he felt into Union hands, he feared, probably rightly, his trial and execution would be squeezed for every drop of propaganda juice. General Pillow, for less clear reasons, also dreaded the idea of falling into enemy hands. Both men played with the idea of another breakout attempt, but were stopped cold by the protestations of Buckner. He believed any such attack would cost three-fourths of the men and that no general had the right to make such a sacrifice of human life. Pointless suicide would achieve nothing, and thankfully Buckner's bravery and reason won the day. 
Floyd and Pillow decided the next best course of action was to flee. In a comical, almost Monty Python-like moment, Floyd officially passed command of the fort to Pillow, who turned around and gave control to Buckner, who solemnly, or maybe sarcastically, accepted authority. Rid of the cowards, General Buckner showed his real strength. Only his honor and pride kept him from running, and as the most subordinate of the three, he had the least obligation to stick it out. Even the fearless and deadly Nathan Bedford Forrest boogied out of town when he saw what was coming. Finding an unguarded stream, he was able to ride out with his cavalry, and a missed opportunity that the Union would soon wish they had back. In the early morning hours of the 16th, Buckner sat down and wrote a letter to Grant. He requested an armistice and hoped that negotiation could be worked out between delegates of the two sides. The act of writing this letter again shows the conviction of character and moral constitution of the Confederate commander. Buckner was fully aware that his surrender would be the first of its kind in the war. He would become hated, persona non grata, in his new country. The sacrifice of his excellent reputation to save the lives of his men is a deed worth the remembering and the retelling. The letter was brought by an emissary to the Union lines and eventually found its way to an exhausted Grant. While resting in bed, he read the letter and asked his former West Point instructor, General Smith, how best to respond. Smith growled, quote, No terms to the damned rebels. End quote. In his response, Grant not only starts his own legend, but defines Union policy for the rest of the war. He wrote, quote, Sir, yours of this date, proposing armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation is just received. No terms except unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. I am, sir, very respectfully, your obedient servant, U.S. Grant, Brigadier General. In one blow, Grant effectively gives the legal argument on how the North looks upon the whole war and makes it clear to the enemy of the present and any in the future, surrender is better than battle. From here on out, it's clear to both sides that Grant and eventually all Union forces will look upon the South as having conducted an illegal rebellion. That negated any kind of rules of war or military etiquette. Instead, it made the Southern leadership no better than criminals. It was, in the words of Chernow, quote, a powerful military message, end quote. It gave the North the moral high ground and made it clear to the South that they were fighting for their very survival, not as a nation, but as individuals. On reading the response, Smith said, quote, it could not be better, end quote. Buckner received the message at his headquarters, the Dover Hotel, a long, squat way station for weary river travelers. Buckner was totally blown away by what he read. The boorish, uncivil, unchivalrous response was unbelievable. He had expected the customary exchange of flowery phrases and genile pleasantries. What he got was a curt warning. If he didn't submit, totally, 
he and all his men were about to get steamrolled into the ground or pushed off the cliffs to their rear. Nothing more, nothing less. And as threats go, the ones delivered with steady frankness and with a Spartan selection of words are usually the ones to fear the most. Buckner wrote back a haughty rejoinder, trying to save face, but he made damn sure that he was clear he was following Grant's orders to the letter. He wrote, quote, Sir, the distribution of the forces under my command, incident to an unexpected change of commanders, and the overwhelming force under your command, compel me, notwithstanding the brilliant success of the Confederate arms yesterday, to accept the ungenerous and unchivalrous terms which you propose. End quote. The whole exchange is summed up best by the titan of military history, my favorite, John Keegan. He attempted to understand how a man that so regularly failed and was an outsider, even when he was the top dog, how he could be so successful at war. For Keegan, it was a matter of timing. Grant was a man for the modern age, of invention and reinvention, of imagination and determination. Keegan said of him, quote, It may have been the combination of his headstrong character with his total ignorance of the rules and practices of warfare which made him so effective. End quote. Whatever the recipe or concoction was, it worked. The Union Army inflicted over 300 deaths and 1,100-plus wounded on the Confederate garrison. They also captured over 13,000 men, the entire army and the fort itself, with the command of the river below. It was the most massive haul of prisoners in North American history to that point. Grant's own losses were significant, higher than the enemy's even. And this would be something that followed him through the rest of the war. Union dead came to over 500, with almost 2,000 wounded and 200 uh, missing or captured. Future victories would come just as costly for Grant, and it would be something that he would think about for the rest of his life. The line of defense from the Tennessee to the Mississippi was cut, and for a moment the South was split. A wedge had been driven and aimed right for the deep south. From Murfreesboro to Memphis, Confederate armies were spread out and separated by almost 200 miles. Grant had gained control of the Cumberland and Tennessee rivers, most of Tennessee itself, and ensured that Kentucky would stay neutral or northern. The Mississippi was only held by the great fortress of Vicksburg, and that, too, would soon be in Grant's sights. The victory of Fort Donelson was soon squandered, and therefore the war prolonged. A series of jealous betrayals by Halleck and nasty, petty orders by McClellan hit Grant at the same time. He was a notorious binge drinker, but not a forever drunk. He was duly aware and afraid of the bottle's hold, always conscious of the siren song. But, nevertheless, the shadow of his trouble with drink reappeared, and though it was all just vicious lies and insinuation, Grant was punished. Things would soon change, and Grant's story would continue, but the legacy of Fort Donelson is more than just the capture of that enemy position on the bluffs. 
The real legacy of the battle lay in Grant's almost Mr. Deeds-like ability to set the course of events practically unknowingly. In the aftermath of the fight, Grant, walking the battlefield, came upon two wounded men, one a Union lieutenant and the other a Confederate private. He shared his flask with both men and called for a stretcher-bearer. The stretcher-bearer came over and ignored the Confederate man, but Grant stopped them and, according to Chernow, said, quote, Take them both. Together. The war between them is over. End quote. He hated what the war had done, how it had so clearly divided and shattered the unity of the nation he was so proud of. Beyond patriotism, Grant also hated the devastating human cost of conflict. Post-battle, he was overheard by aides quoting Burns, the poet. On seeing a line of wounded men, Grant said, quote, Man's inhumanity to man makes countless thousands mourn, end quote. He recognized that someday down the line, they would all need to live as one again. To that end, Grant forbade celebration and gave the surrendering rebels their dignity and defeat. Here, too, he sets the road for how northern armies would deal with the issue of slavery. This early on in the war, he was still refusing to harbor escaped slaves because it was illegal. But at the fort, he had taken 200 as captives. By rights, he was supposed to return them to their owners as personal property. But Grant claimed them as contraband. And in this way, he uh, kept them within the army, giving them jobs, not paying jobs, but putting them to work within the army. And as, uh, as, as time went on, this eventually would lead to the first baby steps towards black soldiers playing a role in the final outcome of the war. And maybe the most important legacy was the bond created between general and president. After Fort Donelson, Lincoln paid close attention to his shiny new major general. He began to believe that he truly needed Grant to win, not just for his fighting ability, but for his reliability and his self-sufficiency. Lincoln soon realized he didn't have to babysit the man, and that was wonderfully refreshing. According to John Palmer Usher, Lincoln said of him, quote, General Grant is the most extraordinary man in command that I know of. I heard nothing directly from him and wrote to him to know why and whether I could do anything to promote his success. Grant replied that he had tried to do the best he could with what he had, that he believed if he had more men and arms, he could use them to good advantage and do more than he had done, but he supposed I had done and was doing all I could that if I could do more, he felt that I would do it. End quote. Lincoln said that Grant's conduct was so different from the other generals he dealt with in command that he could scarcely comprehend it. In that quote there, he's saying that Grant didn't bother him for reinforcements and more equipment and, and all the other things that generals cry about all the time because Grant assumed that Lincoln would do his job and give it to him if he had it to give. And that, for Lincoln, is a really uh, a blessing after the nightmare of dealing with McClellan. Lincoln goes on and was willing to overlook possible failings uh, of, of Grant's character, like his al alcoholism and, and any other issues that might 
pop up at some point. He says, quote, He doesn't worry and bother me. He isn't shrieking for reinforcements all the time. And if Grant only does the thing down there, I don't care much, so long as he does it right. Why, Grant is my man, and I am his the rest of the war, end quote. In maybe the most famous show of faith for his general, Lincoln was told to cut Grant loose by Alexander McClure. In response, Lincoln quietly but firmly replied, quote, I can't spare this man. He fights. All right, guys. That is our episode on Grant and Fort Donelson. I know I got kind of carried away with uh, U.S. Grant there, old unconditional surrender Grant. But, man, he is he's absolutely fascinating as a character. And I, I love the idea of, of the bromance between him and Lincoln and the bromance between him and Sherman. Um, I can't wait to get deeper into, uh, into the Civil War and, and see these guys pop up more. Um, Chernow's book is so good. You've got to pick it up. You've got to read it. I know it's a beast. It's a, it's a, it's a big, big book, but, uh, definitely pick it up. It reads fast. Also, if you get a chance, read some of those Shelby Foote, uh, narrative histories. They are really good. The guy writes like, uh, he's, you're like, you're watching a movie. Um, can't recommend those books enough. So go pick them up. Uh, next up, we have our What If Theorycast live stream next Wednesday at 8 Eastern Standard Time on Instagram. To uh, participate in that, all you guys have to do is go to the Instagram, and when I go live at 8, you can type in questions, comments, theories, or if you have something really hot that you want to talk about in terms of theory, something that needs to be face-to-face debated, Click the join button and we can do a split screen for a couple of minutes and chat it out. Again, that's Wednesday night at 8 on Instagram. Uh, we do that every Wednesday. And the, uh, the live stream after an episode will be about the theory. Check out Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for images, maps, and video. Uh, Patreon has some cool tiers that you can get rewards for if you become a patron producer. I actually sent one of our packages out to Australia today, and I am sending out some more uh, show apparel next week, so definitely head over to Patreon if you want to support the show. For all of those different things, just go to the various site, search Cauldron, and we should pop right up. As always, please, please, please rate, review, subscribe, share with a friend, share with an enemy, share with family, share with anybody you know. Uh, It really helps the show to get up there on the charts and get more people seeing it and watching it or listening to it. Um, And I love to see what you guys have uh, to say about the show. So, again, rate, review, subscribe, share. All right, next up, we have the Holy Roman Empire. Swiss mercenaries, German Landsknecht, and the capture of a king at the Battle of Pavia. Oh,